I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. Have you ever felt like your goals or dreams were just about impossible? Have you ever been discouraged because you just weren't sure how on earth to get started? Or maybe someone told you along the way that you would never amount to much of anything. Well, if any of that rings true, this episode is definitely for you. When AJ Edelman tried skeleton for the first time at the Olympic facilities in Lake Placid, New York, he was given an assessment that he was not equipped for skeleton and he would never be truly competitive. Nevertheless, AJ set out a goal of qualifying Israel for the 2022 Olympics. But lacking funds, he couldn't exactly afford a coach to teach him his sport. So do you know what he did? At one point, he was watching nearly 12 hours of YouTube videos daily in order to learn how to do skeleton. And as a result, in 2018, AJ became Israel's first skeleton athlete to compete in a Winter Olympics. But his story doesn't start or end there. AJ suffered depression as a result of prolonged bullying back in middle school. And we talk about how that impacted him and what others can do if they find themselves in that same situation. And making history by becoming an Olympian is not the end of his story either. His dreams have grown and so has his passion. But before we talk to AJ, I want you to go and subscribe to this show right now so that you don't miss a single episode. The very next one could be the one that you need to hear in order to overcome some obstacle or it could provide the right encouragement that you need to keep going and make it to the end. And while you're subscribing, please take a minute to rate and review us. Your reviews really do help us continue to bring on these awe-inspiring guests. I believe that there's gold in your future, so let's dive on into this episode. AJ Edelman, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I am truly looking forward to hearing your story because it has all of the awesome elements. <laughs> all right. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah. Well, I just want to jump right into some of the deep stuff with you. With I mean, the current state of affairs in the world with COVID-19 essentially shutting the world down and you know putting millions of people out of work, and then you add in all these recent racial protests and riots, Like, I think we're all in need of some serious talk about mental health. And I know you love to talk about that. So one of the first things I want to dive into with you is your experience as a kid getting bullied. Yeah. Um, mental health is a topic that I'm very passionate about about speaking to kids about and adults alike. My experiences with mental health stem from three specific years when I was bullied as from ages 10 through 12. I was bullied pretty mercilessly and through that developed a depression. And that depression has stayed with me through my entire life and pops up at various points and is far from being the impediment that I think most people think depression is by default. It has, of course, held me back in many respects, but the only reason why I try to do any of the things that I try to do is born out of using those experiences and in particular, the negative feelings that sometimes come about from depression as fuel. I love that. Well, so how did you, I mean, obviously you don't from the very beginning go, ah, this stinks, but I'm going to use it as fuel. Like, how did you come (laughs) to that point, you know? I think that most things that we find to be effective tools come about as a result of just experimentation. And for me, it wasn't it wasn't purely an issue of experimentation, but it was more that as I was bullied and I kept wishing essentially that I would disappear in many circumstances, that I thought at one point, yeah, I can't disappear. I'm not going anywhere. I'm kind of tethered here, uh, for lack of a better uh, word. And so all these guys or and gals really who are who are uh, taunting me and tormenting me in 20 years, they're going to be nowhere. I'm not going to let this hold me back and I'm going to be on top of a mountain. So it's always been kind of a, I didn't know it was a literal mountain, but I, I, I had thought that um, that I just wanted to go and accomplish something and show them that uh, it was a negative reaction. It was just, uh, you know, I'll show you uh, kind of thing. And that has always informed so much of what of what I have ever ended up doing in life. So whether it was a negative scouting report where I just threw myself into the, into a sport, even against the wishes of, of coaches, or whether it was getting into school because uh, because I was a bad student for a very long time and I just needed to, to prove to myself that I just wasn't that bad. It's always been about, you know, rise above and be the best that you can be, but initially motivated by some very negative uh, experiences. Right. I mean, I can kind of relate to that. Not Not the bullying part so much, but but kind of wanting to all show you, like I've had a lot of those experiences as well, but 
Well, what, what advice would you give for people who are maybe dealing with like being bullied and they aren't having the same outlook as you have, um, but they're just, they're just kind of in that day in, day out, I can't handle this. Like, what, what would you tell them? So I think bullying present, are you talking about depression or just bullying? Well, both. Well, it's a great question because de- depression can come from so many sources. And so I'll talk to bullying first because it is something that takes so many different shapes or form and forms and is more easily, I think, acknowledged in many people's lives. People are more willing to admit to themselves that they are, that they have been bullied rather than saying, you know, I have a mental illness or I have something holding me back mentally. So when it comes to issues like bullying, for me, the realization eventually that bullying is about somebody who has tied a rope to you and is trying to hoist themselves up by pulling you down. You're the tether and they have they are below you by default. And the only way that they are lifting themselves up is by trying to pull you down. So at the outset, you're already above them. And realizing that is so difficult because you're being you're in the moment and being, you know, stepped on by someone. But I think that over time it becomes easier to accept and understand once you really kind of look into who your bully is in understanding that there's something broken and fundamentally flawed usually in their life. And it was, it, in, to me, a, a, very important, a, a very important turning point came when my grandfather had told me that when he was in the Navy, he had took a swing at these people who were very anti-Semitic towards him. And he was in the Navy in 1940s, and it was a pretty, it was a pretty drastic time for the world. But he was being picked on in the Navy because he was Jewish. And one day he said he took a swing and these guys ended up jumping him and, and beating the hell out of him. But they never they never t- tormented him again because they respected him. And so I one of these days I walked into school and I was still only 12 years old. But I, I heard this, you know, my grandfather took a swing and go take a swing at someone. Probably not the smartest idea. But as this kid was kind of taunting me as I was at a computer, I just reached back and, and elbowed him right in the mouth. And, uh, and it was, I'm not proud of it, but he started crying and he said, you know, don't tell a teacher, my parents are getting a divorce and all these kinds of things. And I realized at that moment that he had, he had perhaps a worse situation than I had. Wow. And it's, and it's something that behind everyone. And I was, I was bullied really by somebody I considered to be a mentor and a brother in my own sport, uh, who, you know, it, it became apparent only way later after tolerating it that he was using me. But I had always kind of known that there was something in his background that he felt really insecure about. And so for a lot of time, I actually kind of just accepted it and thought, you know, I'm mentally pretty strong. I've dealt with bullying for years. I'll let him do as he pleases, because if that is what prevents him from going over to an even darker place, I'm OK with that. But at some point, you actually realize that bullies move on to the next weaker target and you have to stand up to them. And so eventually I did stand up to him after a few years of this and he called me a cancer and said all sorts of you know negative things, then moved on and did it to somebody else. But I was able to talk through that person and say, you have to disassociate from this from this guy. He's a really toxic individual and and they thanked me for it. They they started to get some of you know that that kind of taunting and bullying from him and and it, it solidified to me what is so important, which is that even though even though other people hurt you, they themselves are oftentimes hurting, but that's also not an excuse to take it. So do your best to disassociate from the situation if you can. And if you can't, realize always that you are on a higher plane than your bully. And that's the only reason that they are trying to affix their rope to you. Now, when um, I had said to, there was an interviewer, Adam Mendler, somebody who does, who's a, who does interviews and he said, you know, how can we as a society fight bullying? And what are your core messages and pieces of advice? And really, there's a difficulty in saying we need to fight bullying because bullying as it stands, in my view, is, is just a cancerous byproduct of deeper issues, low self-esteem, wanting to fit in, viewing those who are different from you that as others, and even a lack of love. But bullying is primarily, in my view, a means of trying to raise someone up through the terrible method of putting other people down. And so we have to fight bullying by addressing the root causes. That would be better mental health counseling for children, young adults, making sure they feel loved and cared for by their teachers, parents, and friends, and to bridge the gap between what seems different and foreign and what seems familiar and comfortable. 
And so that that's basically as much as I can probably say in brief on bullying, even though it wasn't very brief. Now, when it comes to when it comes to mental health, it was great. That was perfect. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. When it comes to mental health, there is really only one core piece of advice which I can give as a blanket piece of advice because mental health really presents differently for everyone because it is in the mind, and that is realizing that it is indeed. A, an illness much like a cold or a flu or anything else in that you have to actually seek to make yourself better through the use of techniques. And that does not mean always um, medication, but it does mean that um, in, in the same way that if an athlete pulls a, mu- a muscle, it, a medication is not, is not always the thing that's prescribed for the muscle. There's heat therapy, there is massage therapy, there is all sorts of stress, uh, stretching. Yesterday, I tweaked my back and I went to a physio today and I said, you know, I'm really concerned about how we're going to deal with, with this. I don't know if it's a herniated disc. I don't know what it is. And he said, we could try a number of things to first assess what it is. But each and every one of these things that we could try will probably eventually help you feel better. So there's nothing wrong to do. So mental health is very similar to most other health issues. And that it presents differently for people, but we have to acknowledge that it not only exists and that it exists within ourselves, but that there are many methods that we can take to treat it, but we have to treat it. Well said, definitely. I mean, that's not something that, yeah, people people are weird about mental health things and they think, oh, it's something I just deal with or I just suck it up. And it's okay to recognize that you have the issue and admit that there's an issue and then go out and get help and fix it and, and find a way because there are multiple ways, but to not just sit by and try to suck it up because it's going to get worse if you don't deal with it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, now I know changing the course a little bit, I know you played hockey at MIT, which by the way, MIT, very impressive. Um, but how did you <laughs> go from playing hockey at MIT to being a skeleton athlete? Okay. I have to, I have to stop before anything further. There's an internal part of me, which I think that as an athlete yourself can sometimes share when people mention like a, a competition without an achievement. So if, when you say like MIT is very impressive, I view, I view schooling, especially as a school's reputation is built on entirely everyone who came before you before getting there. And so I'm always going, if somebody ever says MIT very impressive, I'm always going to say like, hold it right there. I don't actually view that as any sort of achievement. What, what we do later with it will entirely, whether the school's reputation in 50 years is somewhat rested on any of my achievements, then I'll say it's somewhat impressive. <laughs> But um, I like that. Awesome. (laughs) I appreciate it. But I've even forgotten the rest of the question. I'm sorry. I I know you played hockey in school, but you ended up obviously you're now a skeleton uh, Olympian. So how do you go from hockey to skeleton? The short version of it is that when I was growing up, I was a hockey player and I was scouted in middle school as most hockey players who are looking towards the future are. And I was offered that young. Uh, yeah, because, well, you want to be uh, recruited to prep schools and go play at, at, at elite, you know, at these elite kind of high school institutions. That way you better your game, you get more coaching resources. And so I was offered prep school offers and scholarships and ended up thinking that Jews just don't do sports, you know, and why, why, why am I going to leave my religious Jewish day school in order to go to, um, you know, a Catholic boarding school potentially to go play hockey when Jews just don't play sports. Um, and wait, so wait, I, I, you're thinking, or was that like your family thinking or where was that thought coming? My, my family was incredibly supportive. My father was very supportive. He put the decision in my hands. He said, you need to think about this. Um, but that was my thinking is that, you know, who, which religious Jew goes on to play? Is this a feasible thing going on to play elite sports after even, I mean, what's the end goal? Is the end goal university level of of, uh, of sport, in which case I was thinking, well, maybe academics is far more important to base your future on if, if just playing in, in university is the goal. But I thought really the prime thing was that Jews, religious Jews just don't go do sports. And uh, and so I shut down that line of thinking, stayed at my religious Jewish school. And it was kind of a point of pride for me for a while where, you know, I turned down an offer to go play, you know, prep hockey and such. But Eventually, I came to view it as a very negative decision, not because of the decision that was made, because I don't believe that decisions are ever wrong if they're made with the right intent. And we can get to that later. Is there's myriad of examples of things that, that I the road not taken. But ultimately, when I was offered a chance to play for the Israeli national team uh, in 
which would take place after university, I had really regretted making a decision that was based on my identity. Uh, and I thought, you know, I shut down that future career path for me potentially purely because of how I viewed myself, the circumstances of my birth. You know, just saying that because I'm Jewish, I don't do X, Y, and Z, that doesn't make any sense. In fact, that's the worst message to ever send to kids if I ever want to talk to kids about my journey. So I wanted to, I wanted to undo that. I wanted to actually break this self-vicious cycle that I think religious Jews or many communities which come from insular communities, it doesn't have to be religious Jews, but many insular communities have set in stone kind of beliefs of where they're headed. And the way to change it is by example. Because nobody is going to listen to a washed up has been MIT hockey goalie, you know, when he comes out and says, no, we can do sports. And they're like, yeah, you, you, but you played at MIT hockey, you know, like, well, come on. And so the Olympics, getting Israel to the Olympics was, I thought, a platform that could be used to start a foundation to get more uh, funding and resources to kids in communities who otherwise wouldn't pursue sports and to break the vicious cycle in those communities in particular. And that's when I made the Olympics my goal. Of course, the how I came to Skeleton was a completely different story. It was more out of spite against a negative scouting report that I had gotten than any particular interest in doing Skeleton itself. But well, uh, so the was, transition was the plan uh, though to do hockey at the Olympics then, or how? What was <laughs> like I'm going to find a sport and go to the Olympics? No, no, no. The um, the the plan was to find a sport in which I could actually become truly excellent and elite. Mm -hmm. to show that Jews could become elite in a sport even later on in life. So it wasn't one of these journeys of let's find an easy sport to go to the games in because in actuality, both of the sports that I had chosen, speed skating, which I was given a great scouting report in, and skeleton, which I was given a horrible scouting report in. <laughs> skeleton, I would think, I actually b truly believe that is the hardest, hardest winter Olympic sport to qualify for. There's only 29 spots in my year, and there's many, many hundreds of athletes around the globe trying to get into this 29-person uh, door. And it's entirely based on performance only relative to your exact peers in that Olympic year. So as opposed to some sports, which I know are on a rolling basis, I don't know if swimming is still on a rolling basis. I heard at one point that it was, you know, not just that season, but it was on a rolling basis. Everything comes down to that particular season. Uh, no matter if you were world champion the season before, your performance has to be in that particular Olympic season and uh, good enough to make it into the top, let's say, 14 countries in the world uh, due to the quota system. Wow. That's intense. So did, were you just trying a bunch of different sports at that point to, to see what would be the good fit? No, for me, it was all about speed skating because okay. I thought it had the natural carryover from being a hockey goalie that um, speed skating, your cuts go out to the side mm -hmm. very much. And so given that I'm a goalie and side to side movement in the butterfly position was so important to me. And so and, and I had such explosive power in my in my lower legs. I thought speed skating would be terrific and that I could become elite in, let's say, eight years right. um, to the point where we can get Israel to the Olympic Games. But when I saw a sport on television called bobsled, and in particular, I saw Steve Holcomb, who is a U.S. bobsled legend. He died in 2017. He, uh, had, he would eventually become a, a good friend. I saw him during the U.S. Olympic team trials in October of 2013 as I was watching television late at night. And I was wondering what to do with my life. And I see bobsled on television and I go, oh my God, I spend all day in the gym, like just pushing heavy things. And this looks like just nothing but pushing a heavy object and then using your hands, which I'm a goalie. I use my hands quite well. So using your hands to drive this bus down a track, like what could be better fit for a hockey goalie? And so I, I messaged Israel's Bobsled and Skeleton Federation the team had originally started in 2002. Uh, the head of the federation was a guy named David, is a guy named David Greaves. He had stayed on. The team disbanded as a Bobsa team in 2006 after the Turin, after they tried to make Turin. And I basically said, I, I want to go do this for you. And I was told in very clear terms, well, you're too short and you're too small to do Bobsa as I'm 5'10 and I'm 180 pounds. And so you want to be six feet and over 200. And so I, I, I said, come on, like, I'm a guy who will push through anything. Don't don't tell me that. And so I said, okay, fine. So if you want to do bobsled, you need to find three or four other Jews and Israelis to sit in the back of the sled with you. You need to spend an insane amount of money over the next few years and good luck with that. And so I said, okay, well, is there another thing potentially in the same realm that I could do? And they said, skeleton. 
you could probably be decent for skeleton, which is the head first on a lunch tray version of bobsled. Um, <laughs> That's a great description. <laughs> yeah, it's it is it is the cousin sport. It's well, it's really the bo- the, the brother sport of bobsled. And uh, I went to try it. I was pretty hooked. It's kind of like the first time you go down, they pad you up like the Michelin man. They send you from halfway down the track and you don't feel anything besides the exhilaration of G-forces and adrenaline. But at the end of the week, I asked for my scouting report and they said it it, it was probably, I can't imagine them giving a worse scouting report, which was selected excerpts where you are not what we would call athletic. You are not what uh, you are not equipped for the sport. You may achieve a small level of success and that'll be the most of it. And you are never going, you will never be competitive. Uh, and so cutting it off right at the beginning, (laughs) it was basically like they were trying to save me the, the trouble and heartbreak of entering, uh, a journey, which for sure would not work out. And I appreciated that they tried to do it. But when the moment they said that it was like, no way, you know, like there, there's absolutely no way I'm going to do what I thought then was the easier path of speed skating. I'm going to prove these dudes wrong. And the nail in the coffin was that I was in the cafeteria that night. This was my 23rd birthday. So it was March 14th of 2014. And I was in the cafeteria that night getting ready to go home. Uh, and uh, Steve Holcomb, who I'd seen on the Olympic team trials months before, he walks into the uh, Olympic training center. You would know it as the OTC in Lake Placid. And he's holding a box of pizza and he's got a medal. And I go up to the guy and I'm like, hey, this is um, my name's AJ. You inspired me to come try the sport. I'm a skelly for Israel, but I'm not sure whether this is going anywhere. And he looks at me and he says, um, I'll see you at the next one. Oh. And so, yeah. So from then on, we took a picture in front of the sign at the OTC. And from then on, every time we met up at a track, which was three or four more times, we would talk and then we would recreate that picture up until he passed in 2017, which was a difficult uh, thing to hear. But I, I know that, that I certainly did not touch Steve's life, but he certainly did touch my life, which is an ex- excellent kind of lesson that I always take, which is people may not register on your scale, but you can impart an enormous amount of influence and help on other people's lives. So I credit always his words with, uh, with pushing me to go and take the, the, the path that I did. I love that. Well, kind of along those lines, like, and this is where I, I feel like I know I just mentioned, I think we have that kind of same, I'll show them attitude. Cause I was kicked off my high school diving team and I was called a waste of space. And like <laughs> two years later, made the national team, went to world cup, got a medal, you know, won the Olympics a couple of years later. So I totally get this, uh, this whole attitude. Um, and something I read about you was from your first race. Um, and so something about you finishing over 18 seconds behind <laughs> and yeah. someone made some comment, which made you change your goals. So you have to share with us this story. Yeah. Um, Israel's bobsled federation. So David uh, Greaves is, is the absolutely unbelievable man who uh, the driving force behind Israel bobsled. He joined the team in 2002 uh, as a brakeman, a pusher in, in for the bobsled team and has stuck with it. And when they didn't, you know, when 2006 didn't come to fruition, then later on for my direct predecessor, Brad, uh, Brad is an amazing human being. He tried to make Sochi in 2014. When that didn't pan out, he was still trying to get Israel to the games in a sliding sport as of 2014. And so he's a giant amongst men, in my opinion, in, in the realm of sport. If, if you just an amazing man. Uh, but he got pretty much the same scouting report that I got. And so they ghosted me. Uh, Israel Bob said kind of ghosted for six months. I didn't hear from them and ended up taking a job out in California as a product manager at Oracle and was lying on the roof of my car, on the hood of my car one day outside of a laundromat, wondering what am I going to do with my life? Because I started to get very depressed. You know, this, this Olympic gold didn't turn out. I wanted to change the world and do all these things. And now because I was told that I was garbage, I don't even know how to go race. Uh, but I get a call from David and he said, you know, Brad is not going to be going again this year, but we need somebody to go and do a race for us. Otherwise, we lose some developmental stuff, you know, any source of developmental consideration, because then we have no, you know, the Federation just doesn't exist without an athlete. So go down to Park City and go do a race. And you haven't uh, really done any training? <laughs> I had done no training, nothing. But, um, you know, David uh, is is just a wonderful guy who inspires a natural amount of confidence. So, I, of course, I was like, where the hell have you been? 
you know, um, you know, I was about to, I was about to sign up for six days a week of Brazilian jiu-jitsu and, and, and route to my goal had been then, okay, I'm not going to do skeleton. I'm going to become a, a, a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu as quick as possible. And I'll make my mark there. But, um, I love, I can I just did, pause and say, I love your big goals. Okay. I'm not going to do this. Well, then I'm going to do this. Like, I, <laughs> like I'm going, whatever I'm going to do, I'm doing it all the way. Like, I love that. Oh, I had put the down payments already. They were like, we need some upfront thing. And I'd, I'd signed up for six classes and they were like, okay, we're going to block out some six classes for you. We need some commitment here. So I'd already paid a down payment. But the moment I'd heard, um, uh, or deposit, we call it, uh, the moment I'd heard, you know, David say, you know, go down to Park City, we'll enter you into a race. I was like, that was it. And I went down to Park City and I absolutely got destroyed on the sled because from at that point you take off the padding and you're no longer the Michelin man and you're hitting everything in sight. And the worst thing for me is that I was sliding blind. So throughout my entire skeleton career, I couldn't see through the high G force corners. I couldn't lift my neck up. There was something about the scoliosis, which I'd had that prevented me from, from keeping my head up in the corner. And so I eventually it turned into quite the asset because I learned how to drive by feeling pressures, very subtle changes of pressure, which is very necessary. And I credit that for the, you know, one of the only reasons that 2018 became 2018, but I literally got the crap kicked out of me, um, in, in that week and, and broke a couple of ribs and, oh, uh, but, oh, it was, it was totally fine. But somebody in the, in the training in, in the house at the start house at the top where all the athletes kind of congregate and, and uh, put on their stuff before waiting to go out and take their run. I heard this guy on the US team, he was trying to impress somebody who was out there with them. And he said, you know, most people quit within two years because they're, you know, they can't take the pain or the G forces and blah, blah, blah. And then he pointed, yeah, he didn't realize that it, sound travels in a small room. Uh, but, and so he said, you see that guy over there who finished 18 seconds behind, he'll be gone within two years. And so that just incensed me. Uh, and my original goal had been when Steve had actually said, I'll see you in a couple, I'll see you at the next one. I had written out on a piece of paper, 2,884, because that was the amount of days that, that were left until Beijing 2022. And I swore that Israel would get to the games by 2022 in a sliding sport. And so when I heard the two year thing, I basically, uh, crossed out the 2,884 and wrote 1,442. Because it then became about trying to get to 2018 because I was so aggravated that this jerk would, you know, and, and he had every right to because 18 seconds is like Usain Bolt running 200 meter races and the other guy's not even starting. It's, <laughs> it's, it's at 90 miles an hour, which is what we touch. That is, that is half the track, mm -hmm. you know, so that is really, really bad. But over the, over the next few years, eventually against the same victor, uh, against the the same guy, I lost to a guy named John Farrow, who's a lifelong friend, uh, an amazing individual who has his own stories that that dwarf mine. Uh, and he was the victor in that race. And I had the opportunity to race against him in my qualifying season. And one of my qualifying races was at the same track, the first time that I had raced there since that first race. And we cut that 18 seconds down that had been cut to something like 1.18. Oh, wow. seconds and it was it was a very very happy uh, experience for i think both of us because john was such a supportive friend and i couldn't have done it without him uh that you know we cut that we'd cut that down ah oh, that's so cool that had to be so gratifying like this kind of full circle you know what i mean that's awesome well, okay. yeah. So how, how did you improve though so much so fast? I mean, it's one thing to have the fuel and the, the motivation, you know, the fuel to your fire that people telling you, you know, you can't do this, but I, you also had like no funding. And I know you were kind of studying YouTube as your coach. So how on earth did you actually overcome all that and start improving so drastically? I think it was the difficulties involved. So there, there, there have been individuals in the sport who, and I'm sure that you've seen this in your own sport where people come in with either a leg up due to who they're, who they're going to qualify for or a leg up because of, um, because of talent or raw talent, what we'll call it. And I didn't have raw skeleton talent, but I remember this quote that hard work beats talent, except when talent works hard. Uh, and so I had wanted to basically outwork. I would basically cut that possibility off of even talent working hard by saying that I will work harder than anyone. And so to me, that became um, 
that became an excuse to take three times as many runs as was allowed even by the Canadian national athletes when I was in Canada. So they, they were allowed to take three. I took up to nine. I self-coached by watching YouTube uh, 10 to 12 hours a day to to build what we call neural pathways, which are the highways of information in our brain. So if anyone who's not an athlete is listening, athletes will generally visualize what they want to accomplish even hundreds or thousands of times a day. And the more you visualize that, the, the quicker this neural pathway and the stronger this neural pathway comes. So I, I had once run into a, a professional baseball player and I said, what do you do when you're not actually on the field? He said, I think about hitting curveballs. I said, do you think about hitting curveballs? He said, yeah, all day. I think about hitting a curveball because when that curveball comes, my brain will notice that instantly. And that highway of information of getting from A to B will be that much quicker. And so I really took that to heart. And I, I heard that when I was like eight years old, but uh, it really stayed with me. And so I watched 10 to 12 hours at minimum per day of World Cup footage of YouTube World Cup footage for Skeleton. Wow. And it was very helpful in me, basically, because I couldn't see in the track, I would learn to view myself almost like a drone. Like I, there would be a drone footage playing in my brain of me going through the track that I couldn't see myself. But that was essentially just here's where you're at and here's what must be going on. And so this 10 to 12 hours and the endless amount of run volume was very, very key in achieving, you know, in achieving the goals. So it was just tireless, tireless effort. And I think at the end of the day as well, it's you have to have this goal that's greater than yourself. Uh, Olympic sports are inherently, Olympic journeys are inherently very selfish mm -hmm. uh, if you don't make them about a greater good. And I've seen that a lot in, uh, there's so many positive things about sports in general and an amazing amount of positive things in Olympic sports because you get to represent your country. But every now and then you run into the person who's doing it just because they want to go to the games. And I'm sure that you would have experienced that many times. Oh, yeah. And most oftentimes, the people who uh, who view it that way, they they don't make it because there's nothing to sustain you when the negativity can overwhelm. So when you're out on the road and and you're in the middle of like I was in the middle of Segolda, Latvia in 2016 and. It's cold and wet there and nothing happens. My grandparents had been had been <laughs> essentially exiled from Riga or had to flee Riga a hundred plus years ago because of anti-Semitic pogroms uh, and attacks on their businesses. So they so they they fled Riga with nothing. And so just being there in in Latvia, it was just so overwhelming that I, I just burned out. For the first time in my skeleton career, I had so completely burned out that I had decided to quit and return to my job at, at Oracle. And uh, and I'd written up this note that it was an apology letter to my supporters, uh, you know, basically apologizing for wasting uh, any of the donations that some of them had made and uh, and for giving up on Israel's dream, etc. It was a very, very sad, uh, sad night because it actually was March. It was two years after the scouting report. It was March 14th of 2016. So it was my uh, 25th birthday. And I just I, I, I lost it. Uh, but the motto which i had had in my mind of for myself for my people for my country it pushed me to remember and realize that i was stealing israel's chance like i, I the nobody cares about you as as a skeleton athlete and nobody should care you're just a dude out for a joy ride on a lunch tray because without without the flag of your country you have absolutely no importance whatsoever in the grand scheme of things and i always kept that in mind where you know, nobody should care about skeleton. They should care about the fact that the country competes in skeleton. And so I, I had realized when, when thinking about the greater goal of I'm stealing the chance, Israel's only chance, you know, of making the games and building upon this and getting to that greater goal of having more involvement in sport and reaching people with mental health issues and all sorts of things. And and it, it became about that. And that evening, the thing that solidified it was the Thank You Moms commercial. I'm sure people have seen it. You may have seen it yourself. Yes, there's the one for Sochi 2014 had a hockey player in it. And I would watch it every day. I would watch the 10 to 12 hours of YouTube video. And then I'd watch Israel entering the opening ceremonies for Sochi uh, on YouTube. And then I would watch the Thank You Moms commercial. So the Israel walking into opening ceremonies would always keep it in perspective that I was part of a team. And that the Thank You Moms commercial would always keep into perspective that I had gotten there only because of the support of my parents and everyone else. And so I watched the Thank You Moms commercial, which is very proud, which is very powerful. And um, there was a hockey player in that who at the end of the commercial, he scores the goal at the Olympics. He's 
Uh, he's a Canadian athlete in that commercial, I believe. But he points to his mother in the stands and he's grabbing his jersey and everybody goes wild. Uh, but to me, that kind of put the nail in the coffin of there's no way in hell you're giving up on this. It's it's just, you know, don't steal that opportunity from the people who you promised. And so, yeah, that's another, uh, I think, critical component of getting to any Olympic goal, which is making it not about just yourself. I love it. Like, keep preaching, man. This is like, (laughs) we have a very similar, like, mindset on all of this stuff. And so I love everything that you're saying right now. I think it's so important for athletes listening to really take this stuff to heart from visualization to what on earth are you doing this for? Because if you don't know, one, you won't be sustained through the tough days. And two, it will be meaningless if there's no purpose behind it. So I absolutely love this, Adam. This is awesome. Like keep preaching it. It's great. (laughs) Um, Now tell me, I know faith obviously plays a huge role in your sport. Like tell me more about that. Uh, I grew up modern Orthodox, which is uh, a branch of Judaism, which follows the the laws of the Old Testament, yet exists in the world, in the modern world, and saying, you know, that that you have to have your foot in the modern world. And so he grew up like any other normal, I think, uh, Jewish family that you'd meet on the street. Uh, but in, I think, that upbringing, which I had, was a sense of kind of uh, responsibility and duty to your community, to better your community and to act in the good of, of the people that you are part of. And modern Orthodox Jews wear kippot, uh, by and large, the Jewish skull cap, yarmulke is the, is the tran- transliterated Yiddish uh, pronunciation of it. And, and so when you act inappropriately, people are going to see someone with a yarmulke acting inappropriately. And so you have to always remember that you are being a representative of, uh, and it's a great it was a great preparation for competing in Olympic sport, but you're a representative of your community. And so always when I was out on the road, uh, Israel had given a directive that we should not, because of recent anti-Semitic incidents in Europe, wear any of the team apparel or anything identifying us as Israeli athletes outside of what they called secured venues, which was just, you know, competition. And I was really pissed. So I was really, really upset. And I said, you know, what What am I doing this for? I'm doing this to represent a country and a people and and to touch people and you know, people who would never experience um, talking to somebody who identified openly as a, as a Jew, much less a religious Jew. And there's so much good that could come from just being a good human being and representing your community that when I got that directive, I then printed up a whole bunch of Israel Bob Sutton skeleton t-shirts, made a big jacket and designed my uniform that it could not be like there was a big, uh, massive star of David on the back, Can't and you it. couldn't yeah. you couldn't photograph it. I I designed it that you couldn't. Fo- this is one of the greatest things about being unfunded is that you basically get to create all of your own stuff. <laughs> so so I created the I created the the suit so that it would be impossible to photograph it from any angle without it being explicitly Israeli. That's so awesome. Um, yeah. So I would, uh, when I'd go to a track, in particular the tracks in Germany, I would invite kids down from the stands to lie on the sled and talk about, you know, what the riding a sled might be like. I obviously can't send them on the sled; it's a massive liability issue. But um, like just kind of rocking them back and forth on the ice as they could experience what it's like to lie down on the sled, and always remembering that that I was a representative of my community. And of course, the snide remarks and and kind of vitriol that you get as as a member of any um, kind of either faith-based community or or a smaller community, insular community that comes with it, whether it's, I've had Mormon friend athletes who experience the same, but uh, you're on the receiving end of a, of a lot of uh, negativity and it keeps it in perspective as to, you know, you have to go and create positive impressions because most of the times that you experience that kind of negativity, it's just out of ignorance. It's just people have never met, you know, somebody who they're not, you know, the first time I, I had gone up to Calgary, uh, which was it, which which eventually became my home training base. I ran into an athlete uh, and he called me a dirty Jew. And I said, have you ever even met a Jew before? And he said, no. And I said, well, why, how could you call me a dirty Jew if you never met a Jew before? Uh, like, how do you know Jews are dirty? I mean, I, I smell pretty clean, right? And you know, it was just kind of like the try to kill it with kindness thing. It didn't really work. But, you know, at, at some point, you do realize, though, that most of it is just born out of the fact that people have never met someone from your community. Yeah. And so and so I've kept that in in perspective when talking about mental health too. people who are who are terrified of of, you know, mental health issues generally have just not come into contact with people who they trust who have mental health 
difficulties. And so, you know, it extends far beyond just religion. Yeah, no, very well said. Um, And I know you also have a special tradition. Like, tell me about this tradition that you started in 2015. Yes, it is an incredibly special tradition that I hope is never broken. When I went to Königsee, Germany, which is on the, uh, it's adjacent to a town called Berchtesgaten. And Berchtesgaten, it was a Nazi haven in the 30s and 40s. It's where you'd go if you were a posh Nazi and everything. And the Obersalzberg is this mountain uh, where Hitler built his favorite, basically, home, um, you know, compound on. It's a five-minute drive from the Königsee bobsled track. And I found myself training there on Hanukkah in 2015. And I thought, wouldn't this be just such a nice tradition to have an Israeli athlete every year come back to this track and light Hanukkah candles in the shadow of Hitler's home? And uh, every year since, uh, so I did it in 15, 16, 17. Uh, 2018, Georgina Cohen, uh, who came into the program after the Olympics uh, as a female sliding athlete, she continued it. Uh, this past year, Jared Firestone uh, was able to do so. And so we have uh, we've kept that tradition up. And I greatly look forward to, given that I've returned to, comp- to competing myself, I look forward to continuing the tradition uh, this coming year and hopefully, hopefully forever. That's so beautiful. I absolutely love that. That's so awesome. Makes me want to like think of, okay, well, what can I do next time I'm out? You know, (laughs) this is great. I love it. Little inspiring things. Well, okay. And you mentioned to me briefly about training in Jamaica and I got to hear the whole story because that sounds crazy. (laughs) Training in Jamaica was a total, um, a total trip. We'll call it. It's uh, a lot of people ask, you know, what do you train? Where do you train? And, and I answer, well, during the summer, you can train anywhere because all we do is lift and sprint. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had, of course, no funds, which means hiring a coach, you have to be very careful about how much you're spending on that and the location you live and the rent and everything. And I thought, where's the best place that I can go for less money to learn from the best athletes in the world at sprinting? And the natural conclusion of that was Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they have good track coaches and they have great facilities and or so I thought. And I had been set up with somebody who was a friend uh, of mine who had competed on the Jamaican bobsled team at one point. And he said, you know what, come down and, and visit uh, my friend. He's a good coach and he lives in a place called Spanish Town. And so I had messaged back and forth with this coach. I felt very comfortable that I'd be training in a group with athletes who are better than me, which is always, I don't know about diving or swimming, but that's always the goal for me as an athlete is you have to train in groups that are better than you because there is no way to measure otherwise or to strive for getting better totally. um you know you rise to that level and so i was like i thought you know i'm going to go and sprint with these incredibly talented jamaican sprinters and all sorts of you know um conceptions in my mind or perceptions in my mind of what was going to happen and and it was reinforced by this coach you know and so but i did get down there and i'm picked up uh, two hours late uh from the airport it's 95 degrees outside and very hot and humid and so i'm sitting there and um, you're not allowed to sit in the airline terminal. It's a very small terminal, Kingston. So sitting out in the heat and I'm wondering, is this really like the start of like, this is a bad omen. Um, the guy pulls up in a, in a car, which had overheated on the highway. And he's, he's calling the car, my, my B word. He's like, my B word, she gets overheated, but I'm just gonna, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ride this until the day she dies. And I was just like, okay, this is a really bad sign. We drive back to Spanish town and, there's nobody else to train with in this house. It's a two-bedroom house of which the uh, the mattress uh, in my room had been completely caved in due to, I believe, uh, insects eating it out. Oh my gosh! Uh, there was gosh. there was ants all over the place. I think uh, there was run away at that point. <laughs> oh god! I had nowhere to run. I had no cars. <laughs> I, um, there was no air conditioning and there was no running water, which was the killer. Oh. I mean, the water bill just hadn't been paid right in a long time. And so over the course of the next few weeks, as it became just unbearable to train without water and without a training group. And I said, I said, like, we need water. So what we did was we tunneled down to like the water main and hooked up a hose and got <laughs> water flowing, flowing into the house. But um, I eventually ended up leaving because, um, well, leaving Spanish town because the, the coach rightfully told me, he said, you can't leave this block without me. And I said, why can't I leave this block without you? And he said, look at yourself. And I said, okay, I get your point. He's like, you go outside this block without me. Nobody knows who I am. Nobody knows who you are. You're going to get in trouble. And so um, 
I did leave the block one day as he was out for like 12 hours. I needed to go. I had trained and I, you know, as an athlete, maybe you can kind of um, sympathize here, but I needed some protein and I needed things to replenish my muscle glycogen because otherwise (laughs) if you don't eat properly, you're going to get injured. So I left that block to go and find some, some sustenance and that got held up at machete point. At machete point. Yes. At machete point. It's a big, big knife that they got to, um, so a friend of mine, uh, well, so my girlfriend at the time, wait, wait, wait back up, well, back up. Cause you can't just leave me at machete point and just move on from the story. Well, so, so <laughs> it became very apparent that I was carrying nothing on me. I just had my shorts and I had a credit card, right? Because I was going to the, basically the equivalent of like the corner, the corner, uh, convenience store or looking for the corner convenience store. And so the guy is like, you know, give me what you got. And I was, and I said, I, I literally have nothing on me then. I'm carrying nothing for this particular reason. And he said, well, what do you got in your pocket? I was like a credit card, but the moment you take it, it's just going to be canceled. Right. And, and, and you're going to be super easy caught with a credit card. Uh, and so he kind of just like, he swore at me, told me, you know, like, you know, what the hell am I doing walking without cash and blah, blah, blah. And then, uh, and then he left and uh, a friend, my, my, at the time I was going out with somebody whose father had gone to business school, well, sorry, whose, whose uncle had gone to business school with um, somebody who was well uh, connected to the community in Kingston. And so he basically sent an SOS and was like, get this dude out of Spanish town, uh, bring him to Kingston and set him up, which was amazing because I actually was brought to Kingston to stay at the home of Dr. Blossom Stokes, which if anyone knows the actual cool running story, Chris and Dudley Stokes were the athletes on that team. So Dr. Blossom was their mother. And I ended up staying in Chris's bedroom, uh, you know, his childhood bedroom. Yeah. So it was an amazing, um, uh, I spent another month and a half there until, uh, until I found myself in a bit of a similar situation and decided that this was just a terrible, uh, this was the Olympic preseason. And at some point, a mentor of mine in the sport said, your mental health is going, is going down the toilet and you cannot train in a place which gives you this much anxiety every day. Yeah, and so I then left for for Calgary, uh, but the uh, the experience in Jamaica was very helpful. I got to measure myself against some spectacular athletes. Johan Blake was down there in the same gym that I was at, and uh, and then you really sometimes you actually come to realize that there are significant biological gaps between athletes. And I was born with slow twitch muscle fibers, and there are some incredibly talented athletes who are born with fast twitch muscle fibers, which is good for sprinting and very necessary in our sport, which I just did not have. And it was a very, very humbling time because you're trying as as hard. There's no way, there's nothing I could do in the world. I don't even think if I ever took performance enhancing drugs that I'd ever be able to, to overcome the disparity that just simply exists. And it's humbling. And I think at some point as an athlete, all athletes reach that point, which you basically go, uh, there's nothing I could do. I have to be the best version of myself. And I can't be, you know, it's not like be like Mike, right? I can't be like Michael Jordan, but I can be the best version of myself. And the best version of myself is pretty damn good relative to where it is now. Right. Right. And you always have to think in those terms. And that's when I really truly thought about it. Cause I was like, I was like, yo, and Blake is not even the best sprinter in Jamaica. You know, I, if you heard me, he probably would go, what are you talking about, man? But like, <laughs> I think undisputably, y- Usain Bolt is the best runner on the planet. And and I was like, look, even against even against this guy, you know, you know your limits. So it was humbling. Yeah, I think it's be inspired by and learn from the great ones. But like you said, be the best version of yourself because nobody else can be you. I mean, nobody else can do that. So yeah. 100%, 100%. Well, so you finally make it to the... 2018 Winter Olympic Games. What was it like? Oh my god, it was so stressful. Um, really? I think uh, you yes. Enjoyed so, it for a moment. Yes, I did enjoy it for a moment, but then it turned into. So I did enjoy it very much. the The opportunity to actually be a part of the country that you'd wanted for so long and dreamed for so long to be a part of. Walking into opening, I think as a winter athlete, it's different than summer because summer is actually far bigger than winter. Mm -hmm. I think there's something like 10,000 athletes at the summer because there's a lot of disciplines. Yeah. Uh, But there's 3,000 at the winter and everything is made for the television audience. So the stadium is actually quite small, but you know, a billion people are watching you. So you get out there into this kind of small stadium and you're like, this is it. Like, this is (laughs) like, oh my God. And you feel exactly. You feel like this cog in the machine. You're like, oh, I know a billion people are watching and they're watching from blimps. You know, they're watching from the footage from blimps in the sky. But from here, 
I, I look like a little ant to them. But from here, this whole thing looks very, very, very small. And so I actually look like quite larger in the grand scheme of this whole thing. Um, so it was fun at the outset, but there was also an incredible amount of fear and concern that I faced throughout the games because I was there to do a job and I was fighting in my mind for the future of my program. You know, this was the first time Israel had agreed to send a sliding sport athlete if they qualified and eyes of our Olympic committee were definitely on us. Uh, and so a subpar performance would very possibly lead to them basically saying, this is a sport we don't, we're not interested in. In the words of one of the Israeli Olympic Committee members, uh, when figure skaters don't do well, they look very pretty not doing well. But when you don't do well, everybody knows it and it looks really bad. And so, and so I was like, yeah, I, I get that. So everything about the games was, you know, focus on my competition and be as, as good as I can in my competition. I felt very guilty Right. I felt very guilty almost. And in, in like, I didn't want to enjoy it so much because I was like, if I'm enjoying it, then I'm not paying attention to what I can do for my country. And I know now that that's, that was the incorrect way of thinking about things. And so I'm very excited for the opportunity to continue to compete and go back to 2022. And I've resolved that, you know, the next games will be different. But uh, there was a lot of stressful things which happened at the games. An anti-Semitic incident was directly targeted at me at the games. An anti-Semitic comment from a jury member uh, there was there was a lot of stress and, and aggravation that occurred at the games, but at the end of the day, I think the biggest thing for me was the enjoyment of being there with a couple of people who you had gone through the journey with. So John Farrell of Australia, who had who without his help, I never would have gotten there. He was an amazing uh, mentor to me, and and I loved being in the tent. You know, I, I don't know if it's the same in the summer games, but we were in a tent right outside the stadium as we waited for the for the athletes to march out. We, we didn't hear anything besides loud noises and we're all congregated in, in, in a snake line for our countries. And I went to find John or, and he had gone to find me. And so we kind of met up and, and, and we were like, we knew, you know, we, it was, you know, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's very hard to describe, but it was a moment of pure joy where both of us had, had reached our goals and what we had been trying to achieve and, and knowing that, that we would forever have that experience with each other. And so I'm very, very proud of, of, of the games, but it was, um, it's not just athlete summer camp there. You're there to, to do your job and to, to do well. Yeah, definitely not summer camp for sure. But I'm glad yeah. you were able to, <laughs> amongst all of the pressure and the, the difficult situations, I'm glad you were able to have a special moment like that, that you could take with you and hang on to. Um, well, tell me about what you're doing today. Cause I know you're still training, but you're also now the head of development for bobsled and skeleton Israel. Is that right? Oh, I'm so excited to talk about what's going on today because um, like this gives my whole, I feel like existence uh, when trying to help represent Israel uh, and being just one single athlete of the many hundreds who represent Israel is that you want to build something which can be lasting and you want it to have to resonate and for you to be able to say in the future, I was part of that. And one of the big, big things in my mind after 2018 was did this touch anyone? And did I achieve what I needed to achieve? Right? Could I then retire, you know, and bring new people into the program who are better than me? And, and so we did bring new people into the program who are better than myself. And I'm so incredibly happy to have had the opportunity to coach them. I, I spent, you know, a couple hours of video review a day for one of the athletes during the season. And, uh, and, and so that was my function for the last couple of years, really as head of development, just trying to build out the program as best as we could because we're unfunded. There's literally nothing. There's no, there's no shakel. There's no dollar given to Israel Bob's and skeleton because we haven't won a European championships medal or an Olympic medal. And that's generally the pathway to funding. And so I had been going through Busan airport in April, early April, late March of 2018. So a couple months after the Olympics and somebody who is Korean put a note on my luggage that said, you know, I watched your game. You have inspired the people of the world. And, the, and it kind of makes me cringe because I don't think I inspired any, you know, the people of the world. Uh, I'm just trying to inspire one dude, you know, the next guy to come along. But, you know, you inspired the people of the world and I can't wait to see you in Beijing 2022. And I knew that uh, the combination of the anti-Semitic incident at the games and all sorts of, of pressures had led me to believe that I would never be competing again. Uh, and it just was, you know, now it was time to build up the program and, and create a legacy. Uh, but I kept that letter in the back of, I kept the sticky note in the back of my phone case. Uh, and I took a look at it two months ago, April 2nd. 
and I thought, you know, the journey is not complete because even though I went to, to business school to an MBA program to try to help better manage the team, the program is not complete. We need a bobsled team and we need something that, that can actually be a funding vehicle. And eyeballs and attention on your program is a funding mechanism. And the biggest winter Olympic sport, in my opinion, I think it's, it's always on the final day, is four-man bobsled. Four-man bobsled, because of the cool runnings movie, because so many people know of bobsled, it's just the sport if you want people to pay attention. And so I thought, we have to have a four-man bobsled team. And uh, last year, I'd given it a lot of thought, too. I started to train in it, got a good scouting report. Uh, but two months ago, I said, this is what we are doing now. We're going to build out a program for bobsled and not just four-man bobsled. We're going to get women involved, female two-man bobsled, mono bobsled, which is a new discipline. We're going to create a whole program. And so over the past couple months, I was really trying hard to find somebody who could flip, you could help foot the bill. Mm -hmm. Because as a skeleton athlete, I paid 40 grand out of pocket a year, which was enough to make me go broke. But a bobsled done properly is a couple hundred thousand a year. Oh, wow. Uh, and so, and so I, there's no way I could, I wouldn't even be able to take out a loan for that. So um, thankfully, uh, I ran into somebody who um, runs a company called Fly Uncharted, uh, who is uh, a wonderful, wonderful guy, uh, Alex Nataro. And he basically said, you know, Israel has a bobsled team. I said, yeah, Israel has a bobsled team or we're trying to have it. And he said, how can I get involved? And after that, it was just a mutual friendship that has continued to take form. And he is now uh, the reason that we can compete. And not only compete, we have a whole plan to build out the program with the female monobobsled, female two-man, male two-man, uh, and male four-man to get to a position where in 2026, we're competing for Israel's first Olympic medal, the first winter Olympic medal. Ah, and exciting. Yeah. And I, and I told, I even told him at the outset, I said, look, if we're doing this, I'm not going to be in the medal sled in 2026. You know that. And he said, he said, no, man, don't talk like that. And I said, no, 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 you don't understand. There are just some people who are four feet tall who know they can't play in the end, who know they can't play in the NBA. They could do a lot of great things with their life, but they cannot play in the NBA if they're four feet tall. Right. And so I am the four foot tall guy who can't play in the NBA. I can be a part of the program to build it up and to compete and get us to 2022 because I have the six years of, of driving experience in sliding sport and curve theory and, and all of the effort that was put into learning curves and pressures and that good scouting report from last year. I can drive us to 2022 probably, but I can't be in 2026. So I'm for the first time, I think really laid out and it's such a it's such a gift i would always wondered whether i would get the opportunity the blessing to actually have something put in front of me for which i know without a shadow of a doubt that i will not be part of the end product but i will be i can be a significant stepping stone to creating something really good and so part of that first is uh, winter olympic medal for israel is is getting us to 2022 and if that's my part to play. I'm really, really excited for it. And uh, thankfully, uh, you know, thanks to Alex's uh, support and, you know, Fly Uncharted, we're actually able to to really make a push for that. So that's the effort. That's where it is right now. I'm still in the recruitment phase. I need to find people to sit in the sleds. It's a hard proposition. Well, are you going to be uh, doing both skeleton and bobsled then? Oh, definitely not. So uh, <laughs> the, Had to the ask. sports, yeah, um, I think I was incredibly touched and humbled when better athletes than myself came into the program, including Jared and uh, my former, uh, you know, the person who I had competed with alongside uh, Joel Seligstein, who is now the skeleton team captain. And they're both making their pushes towards 2022. And I wish them both success to doing so. But that means for me, I can dedicate all of my efforts to getting Israel uh, its Olympic bobsled birth. And the, the great thing about it is that if we qualify in a female skeleton, which I believe we we, we can uh, uh, with Georgie, and we qualify in male skeleton, either one or both of them, and then we qualify the four-man bobsled team, uh, and we qualify potentially the female monobobsled or two women bobsledders who we're bringing on this year to develop, like if we qualify in those, we might make up 80 to 90% of the Israeli Olympic winter team in 2022 wow. from zero, you know, from zero in, in 2014. That's where my head's at right now. It's a monumental kind of effort for everyone involved. And uh, I'm definitely not one to take uh, uh, too much credit on it. There's um, David, who I'd mentioned before, who is an amazing uh, head of our program. And 
everyone else, including Alex as well. But it's it's a group effort, and we're really pushing towards making it a reality. And I believe you will see uh, an Olympic bobsled from Israel, either on the male or women's side in 2022. Oh, AJ, that that's just so awesome. We will definitely be cheering you guys on over the next couple of years. That is so exciting. And I just, I love your heart that it is just about more than just you. You are trying to lift up the next generation and your goal has always been bigger than you. Um, but I love that you also have that attitude. Like, don't tell me I can't do that because you're just going to watch me now. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> um, I totally love your mindset and your attitude. Um, and I wish you the best of luck. Thanks for being on with us today. Thank you so much for the time. But if there are any kids or p- prospective um, athletes or even non-athletes out there who, who have questions about, you know, dealing with the struggles of depression or bullying or, or just anything getting stuff done. There are an amazing amount of resources out there, but feel free to just reach out on Instagram or, or emailing adam.edelman at olympian.org. And I always respond to every question, which, which kids or adults even send, but uh, that's why I exist in doing what I do is, you know, so that people can, can ask. So um, nobody should have any kind of qualms about, you know, reaching out, just send a direct message and, uh, and I will respond. Awesome. We'll make sure to link that in the show notes so that people can go there and just click right on it uh, if they need to do that. Thank you so much, AJ. You are very, very welcome. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.